0: Welcome, everyone, to part two of Little Rock's Big Deal, our first two part episode because there's just so much cool stuff to talk about. Last time we talked about the totally crazy history of China's foreign policy uh, and how it's coming to blows with the US's approach, as well as just the general risk of strategic miscalculations on both sides due to very different approaches in policy. And of course, we put this in the context of the South China Sea. And what might be going on right there? You're going to be hearing a lot more about that today. Now, if you're not very familiar with Chinese and U.S. foreign policy, like level of having studied it in college familiar, then we really recommend listening to part one before you continue with this one. So if you need to go look for that, just go to iTunes or Google Play or something to consider movement.com slash reconsider. Find that episode, listen to it. It's a ton of fun. And then come back to this one. Okay, ready?
1: Cool. Xander, you want to start us off with a quick recap? Ready, set, go. So, quick recap there are a bunch of little rocks in the Pacific that are the source of quite a lot of potential conflict, tension, military buildup between both China and other Pacific countries, as well as the United States. And sort of the main island chains that are getting a lot of focus are the Senkakus, which are in the East China Sea, and that has to do with Chinese conflict primarily with Japan. And then there are the Spratleys and the Paracels in the South China Sea. The tension there is with a number of different countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, for our
0: Brunei Darussalam listeners, I just want to make sure that you're in this as well. Uh, Brunei Darussalam, this tiny little nation, basically right smack dab in the middle of Malaysia is also involved, but they have like one island at stake. So Brunei listeners, just know that I'm looking out for you.
1: Good looking out, Eric. So in the prior show, I just want to give a, a quick clarification. I was a little ambiguous with some terminology I was referencing the South China Sea in a discussion about Japan-China relationships, and that part of the ocean is actually referred to as the East China Sea and not the South China Sea. The South China Sea is further south, south of Taiwan, and sits between the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei. Yes, and the East
0: China Sea is also known as the Yellow Sea and the Sea of Japan, and as you might imagine depending on where you live, the name that you call this area of water might have some serious political significance, right? Is this greater Chinese waters? Is it greater Korean waters? Is it greater Japanese waters? And uh, every country sticks to their own name and just really doesn't budge whenever they talk about it in the press, whenever they talk about it with the United Nations, etc. They name it their own thing because they're saying, no, 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 no this is ours. And that level of politicking is very important to understanding what's going on at the international law level. Because to a large extent, post-United Nations, one of the ways that countries have actually very successfully dealt with disputes about territory uh, and about other rights, you know, with land management, sea management, etc., has been by appealing to the United Nations. There are a lot of treaties and laws that most countries have signed, and generally they agree to let it be arbitrated by the UN. So, unlike the 1800s, where people would just say, no, this is mine, I'm going to shoot you until you give up and I have it, the UN has actually done a pretty good job dealing with some of the territorial disputes that countries have had when they are not desperate enough to resort to war in the case of the ocean there is a international law called the united nations convention on the law of the sea or u.n for short that's the acronym and it's very very relevant here so it's the international agreement that resulted from the third united nations conference on the law of the sea u.n three which took place between 1973 and 1982. It was a very long conference, and there was a lot of pizza that was eaten during this period. Lots of good pizza, I would imagine. Lots of good pizza, yeah. from Different pizzas from all over the world brought in via the sea to this <laughs> conference.
1: <laughs> the, a lot uh, of people didn't see their kids over those 10 years. <laughs> the- pizza via the sea, that would be like an epic delivery service. Exactly, yes.
0: Yes, if you're listening from uh, the Bay Area, you can take that and run with it for your next startup.
1: Guys, it's like Uber, but for pizza for boats.
0: Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so uh, this, you know, obviously this was actually a bunch of different meetings. They hammered it out in 1982, and pretty much the whole world has signed up for this treaty. It is worth noting that The United States has not signed up for this treaty, which is, you might say, typical. Now, the United States has actually signed up for most stuff that the UN has put out there that almost everyone else has signed up for. China has signed up for it. And the reason the United States hasn't is because there's this thing called Part 11 about uh, mineral usage. And the United uh, United States didn't want to sign on to that but they have declared that they see every other part of UN CLOS as customary international law that they will follow. So given that China and its neighbors around the East and South China Sea are signed up for UN CLOS, it means that they are bound for whatever definition of bound you have when you don't have a police force to abide by the rulings of the United Nations Court of Arbitration On matters of dispute in territories in the sea. And for China, this might actually come to
1: bite it in terms of its claims in the South China Sea. And if you're sitting there wondering, like, well, okay, this international law, there is no police force, so couldn't they just disregard it? Uh, Kind of. I, I mean, that's what makes these international multilateral institutions so difficult to keep together, and it's why the League of Nations failed. Well, it's part of the reason why the League of Nations failed initially after World War I. So under UN-CLOS, there are a couple of key terms and definitions. One is this concept of a territorial claim around an island, or sorry, well, a territorial claim around a piece of land or an island, and the other is what's called an, an exclusive economic zone, or EEZ. So the first, this territorial claim, is essentially the area where a country or state maintains sovereignty over an area of the sea. It is its territory, its territorial sea. They have control over the airspace above it and the seabed and subsoil beneath it. And the territorial claims extend 12 nautical miles from this piece of land or island. Now, an exclusive economic zone is a little bit different. I'm going to lift the definition just from the Wikipedia article here real quick because it's concise and does the job. An exclusive economic zone is, quote, prescribed by the United Nations uh, Convention on the Law of Sea, UN class, over which a state has special rights regarding the exploration and use of marine resources, including energy production from water and wind. So it's not a country or state's sovereign territory, but they still have exclusive economic rights to this area that other states don't. And as you might imagine, this exclusive economic zone extends further than territorial waters do. And there's a couple of different ways to define the size of an EEZ for a particular country. According to UN CLOS, there's basically two ways to do this. One is just 200 nautical miles from the country's baselines, which is where you're starting to measure from. So basically where the end of their territorial sea ends. The shore, right? Basically the shore. Basically 200 nautical miles from a country's shore. That's one way to do it. The other way, a country has their EEZ that extends all the way out to the continental shelf up to 350 nautical miles. So if a country has continental shelf going out 400 nautical miles, then their EEZ would actually stop at 350. But that actually creates some potential for conflicting definitions of how a nation determines their EEZ by these international standards.
0: What this means is, so we have a bunch of maps posted on the blog post for this, which is at somethedeconsider.com reconsider. And these maps show the EEZ claims of each country. So each country is, of course, claiming the EEZ that is most favorable to it using the article from UN clause that gives it the EEZ that it wants. So when you look at these lines moving through the South and East China Seas, you're going to see what these countries consider their exclusive economic zones. And it happens to be the case when countries are somewhat close to each other that there's a lot of overlap of these EEZs. And dealing with that overlap is pretty, pretty complicated. Now, given that these territorial and EEZ claims become pretty important to understanding the different claims on the islands and surrounding waters in the South and East China Seas. But you might be wondering, okay, we're talking about these tiny rocks. Why are they a big deal, right? These are smaller than Trump's second largest hotel. So, or maybe not, but they're small. The reason different countries care is because there's actually a lot of interesting stuff going on around these islands. And if countries can make certain claims about The nature of the sovereignty or exclusive rights of these islands, they can theoretically gain exclusive economic access to huge areas of the oceans. And it happens to be the case that in South and East China Seas, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So it's a highly productive fishing area. And each country wants exclusive access, right? It wants to be able to fish that when other countries can't. turns out there's a ton of oil and gas that's at the sea floor that different countries want
1: to mine. So, Eric, what you're telling me is that oil is influencing geopolitics? Oil is I, as crazy as it sounds. I, I just never would have guessed.
0: I know. Well, for the first time in the history of man, oil is at the root of geopolitical conflict. And they want to mine it. But most importantly, they're the busiest shipping lanes in the world. So, half of super tanker traffic, that being some oil, and by tonnage, there's three times more traffic in the South China Sea than goes through the Suez, and five times more traffic goes through the South China Sea than goes through the Panama Canal. So, it's a massive shipping area. So, you close your eyes and imagine for a moment that you've got a camera hanging over the South China Sea with, you know, that's sped up, and you've just got. Thousands and thousands of boats, huge ones, carrying tons of cargo, tons of oil going through every day. And having control over this area can be very powerful, right? The, the Egyptians get to extract tolls for the Suez Canal. The Turks get to extract tolls through the Bosporus. And the Panamanians get to extract tolls through the Panama Canal. So there's a huge economic benefit, fishing, oil, and shipping through all of this. And in addition, there's a security aspect, right? So having control of the region means that you have a naval presence far away from your shores. That's going to be very relevant in case a future conflict pops up. So given that these are so interesting and given that so many of these countries are so close and they have all of these overlapping EEZs, the story of which islands and which parts of the ocean territory belong to whom gets very complicated. So countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, Japan, Vietnam, and Brunei claim that a bunch of these islands fall within their EEZ, and that EEZ stretches out from their coasts. And as we know, there's some overlap, so you kind of go, well, which of these islands belongs to who? What really complicates this is that China claims that all of these islands are... Sovereign territory of China, whether they are big islands or whether they are little rocks that stick up by a foot or two from the ocean. So, if you've got something that at low tide happens to pop up, China is going, That's ours. And they're not claiming that because their EEZ extends from their shores out there. No, they're claiming that these islands are the territorial property, the sovereign territorial property of China based on some historical claims. And given that those are part of Chinese territory, their EEZ actually extends not from their continental shore, but from the shores of those islands. So if you look at those maps of EEZ claims, you'll see China's like really swoops down there into stuff that looks like Filipino, Malaysian, Brunei, and Vietnamese water. And so China is saying, look, these are all ours, we were here first, and therefore basically the entire South China and East China Sea belongs totally to us. And when I was doing some work on Professor Fravel's book, I actually spent months pouring through the People's Daily from the 1960s onwards to look for some of these claims that were made public before the dispute really got hot. And just as a quick digression, let me tell you, this was a, a trip. The People's Daily is the Communist Party's like crazy pants propaganda newspaper, and during the Cultural Revolution, it was particularly scary stuff for a lot of reasons. But the key point here is that China has been making this claim to these islands for quite a while, and in the 1990s, they started actually settling the islands, building facilities like harbors, airstrips, and etc., in order to make sure that they would have status quo and historical claims to having those islands to
1: themselves. Right, and China's not only been making these claims for a while in the 20th century, they've been making these claims for hundreds of years. And this is another source of tension for how China interacts with the international community in regards to this region and these maritime laws. Because for China, they will say, well, you know, there's this island that has really been ours since the 13th century in the Yuan dynasty and so we have the historical precedent and everyone else is like well that's not that's not how international law works like that's not a precedent that that that's going to you know make sure that we can actually live up to these rules that we've set for ourselves and China kind of thinks that they're getting a raw deal because they've been around forever so why all of a sudden do they need to play by these new rules so that's another source of tension in the way that China interacts with the international community in this part of the co- in this uh, part of the world, so China's core strategy here really is take something and hope that over time a new status quo sets in. So if they say, okay, this is my island, and the rest of the world is going to go, well, no, that's that's not your island. And China goes, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And the rest of the world goes, okay, well, I mean, nothing. We're not going to. I mean, we're not going to start a war over this. It's just one island. And China goes, all right. And we're just going to sit on it for 100 years until no one questions that it's ours anymore. And this is kind of their approach to parts of the East and South China Sea. Uh, China, for example, is sending fishing vessels to a bunch of areas in the South China Sea, increasingly as a matter of policy, to sort of encourage the status quo and have precedent saying, you know, well, our fishing vessels have been in this you know area for decades, so what are you saying it's not ours? They've also been building a lot of stuff. On these islands, airstrips, military installations, and they've even been building islands, which we'll talk about a little bit more in detail later.
0: Yeah, and just in case anyone is thinking, oh man, China just has these really aggressive territorial ambitions and it just wants to take over all of East Asia, that's actually not how China approaches things. They have their own internal consistency But it's very important for them because for them, legitimacy in the eyes of their own people is incredibly important to their right to rule. And so there's a lot of aspects of this. But for their foreign policy strategy, they have a single thread, uh, a single philosophy when it comes to having legitimacy. And for them, it's essentially that if they have ever held territory in the past, that territory belongs to China, full stop.
1: Because clearly, the path to world peace is for everyone else in the world to just let the Chinese Communist Party own the South China Sea and control the $5 trillion a year in shipping that goes through it. Because as Wang Yi put it, China's demands of sovereignty over the Nanshan Islands have not expanded and neither will they shrink. Otherwise, we would not be able to face our forefathers and ancestors. As Wang Yi points out, 1,000 years ago, China was a large seafaring nation. So of course, China was the first country to discover, use, and administer the Nansha Islands.
0: So China actually has a whole lot of territorial disputes all over the place, all over its borders, with Russia, Mongolia, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Myanmar, in addition to all the South China Sea stuff. These kinds of claims, if they were made in Europe, would be extremely disruptive and unwelcome, right? So if France said, hey, well, at some point we had territory in Spain and Britain all the way down to... Italy and North Africa and East into some of Russia. We didn't quite make it to Moscow. We all died before that, but we got close. So this, it's all ours, right? And the Russians could do that, the Poles and Lithuanians and the Germans. It would be total mayhem. So it's not generally the way that the rest of the world tends to look at things. Just because you were there once doesn't mean it's yours now. And that's why the rest of the world depends on agreed to terms of international diplomacy. But China given the 200 years of shame, it's two centuries of shame, sees all of the territorial concessions it's made in the past as unjust, therefore wrong, and therefore things that it needs to correct. And China has gone to blows over these territorial claims in the past. In the 1960s, they had a brief but pretty bloody war with India and another one in Russia. And these were tiny, uninhabited pieces of land, Uh, the prime minister of India at the time, Nehru, when there was a risk of war, said that he was confident that there wouldn't be because it was a piece of territory over which, quote, not a single blade of grass grew. And so these are literally like bits of rock uh, with Russia. It's this tiny little uninhabited island on a river that runs between them. But they've actually, people have died over this stuff. But for China, this internal legitimacy is crucial to their long, very, very long term strategy. And so the way that they enact on this is to never, ever back down on a territorial claim that they made because it's in particular risky for them to start doing this because then they see an erosion of claims that they think is a slippery slope. So then they start losing claims to Tibet. They start losing claims to Taiwan and all of these other places that they see as critical for their border security that we talked about in part one.
1: Right, and you make this interesting comparison with Europe, and what if France, for example, said, oh, well, we own Spain at one point, therefore it's ours. And an interesting distinction there is Europe has never, there's never really been one country that's been completely and utterly dominant. There have been periods where England has been preponderant, and times when France has generally been the more powerful country, but it's never been like China, the Middle Kingdom, a state that was just the unquestionable power for millennia, disrupted at times, but it does play into how they think about these territorial, ter- uh, territorial claims. So in, in addition, Ch- China isn't just grabbing these rocks and saying, okay, uh, Philippines, sorry, actually Scarborough Shoal, that's ours. They're also building islands. They're creating new islands out of basically dredged up coral reefs. So if you care about the ocean environment, get get mad now, because China is basically just tearing up the seabed, building islands in the middle of the Pacific and saying, okay, well, this is our sovereign territory, so now we get to claim all of these maritime delineations according to U.N. clause I mean, what? We're playing by your rules. And everyone's going, yeah, but that wasn't land before. You just made that up. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Yeah, so they build islands out of nowhere, and then they'll construct airstrips on it and military buildings, and they put missile batteries on some of them and start, you know, stationing their combat planes. And it's all just a way for them to project power further and further out from their shores. Yeah, and as we talked about in part one, for China, the
0: primary frontier of risk for them is the ocean, right? It's where all the bad stuff over those two centuries of shame ever came from. And China doesn't actually have a great blue-water navy. They're not the United States. They don't have 12 gigantor nuclear-powered, I guess it's 11 right now, aircraft carrier battle groups that can project power far out. They don't have what's called a blue water Navy. They have a regional Navy. They have stuff that can sail for a few hundred miles before needing refuel. And so for them, having these bases, these airstrips, because they can't project air power that far either due to lack of carriers. So having both harbors and airstrips is very important for them to pad out the ocean buffer to their east that will reflect the kind of territory or land buffer that they have to the west, south and north. And so to that end, China has been most interested in militarizing the South China Sea. Most countries are really interested in getting out there so they can fish, so that they can pull up some oil, you know, have a great time, maybe get some beaches with some cocktails with little umbrellas on them. But China's thinking, hey, in order to keep other countries like Japan, Korea, the United States from being able to dominate us in the future, we need to have military installations in our territorial waters, because they're totally ours, and put missile batteries, planes, and boats there in order to deter anyone from getting too close without our permission, And so if you look at either the Strat4 article that's in our notes below, or if you look in some of the photos and images that are on the blog post, you're going to see some great looks at harbors, airstrips, and missile batteries that they're building up. Now, in China's weird way, they're trying to be coy or subtle diplomatically about it. Uh, They're not admitting that they're building up a ton of military installations of the South China Sea. They're claiming that it's all scientific or commercial. So they're saying, yeah, this is totally just a nautical or astronomic research station with missile batteries. These missiles are for science. They're missile. Yeah, exactly. These (laughs) missiles are for science. And it's really – it's not – meant to be all that subtle. No one's going there and being like, yes, this will trick the Western powers. They'll never see it coming. But it's one of those weird things that China does, that Russia does, where they'll do something, and just by not admitting it, they know that they're actually going to keep the West off balance a little bit, because it's hard to build the coalition against someone when they're not admitting that they're doing anything wrong. Diplomacy is odd. And this military buildup has actually led to a lot of flare-ups over the past 10 years. So if you don't know much about the South China Sea, one thing you should know is that as this buildup continues and as other countries start seeing it as a risk to them, there have been some incidents that have broken out. And the reason this is happening is if we look back to part one, we talk about the security spiral. Anything that one country does to increase its own security ultimately decreases the security of its neighbors. And in particular, this happens when you do it on a border region, whether it is land or sea. And so as China does this stuff, its neighbors like, in particular, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, and Malaysia look at this and go, holy smokes, we've got boats, planes, and missiles now in our freaking backyards, and we're not happy about it. And so because nobody's doing anything particularly decisive to stop China, There are these incidents that are happening because these guys are saying, all right, China, you've gone too far, and we need to make a point. So a whole bunch of these have happened, and they're escalating. The most recent one that I was able to dig up was that on March 19th, so only a few weeks ago, a big Chinese fishing boat was detained by Indonesia for fishing in its waters. Now, oh, it's just a fishing boat, but it's part of China's bigger strategy of using status quo to... Legitimize its claim. So Indonesia said, you know, said, get out of here. And the Chinese boat was like, huh, what? No. Indonesia picked it up, put it on a tugboat, and started pulling it in. And China actually sent a military vessel to ram the thing free. They just went and blew it out as it's being towed. Now Indonesia at that point had the crew, but while China was doing this, they were like, Holy crap, these guys are crazy. And decided that, and and that's where this escalation stuff comes from, right? Because China doesn't want to say, all right, fine, every time we do something you don't like, we're going to let you get away with this. They said, no, 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 no. We need to set our own precedent that next time you do this, it's going to be hell to pay. So they sent it, you know, so this happened. Indonesia still has the crew. China still has their own boat. I think that tugboat has been wrecked and is being salvaged right now. And it's kind of, it's another, it's one of those moments where we're very lucky that it didn't come to blows and nobody died. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices
1: due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month.
0: Uh, This is near the Philippines, and in the Senkakus, in this case near South Korea, the Chinese keep sending commercial vessels to say, hey, this is totally ours, and it's free to fish. And both the Philippines and South Korea have also detained these vessels in order to set their own precedent that, no, 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 these are ours, and you can't do that. Um, And it's almost led to some military conflicts.
1: Right, and of course, then the United States gets pulled into all of this because— we're allies with a lot of these Pacific countries. I mean, especially Japan and the Philippines. So in 2012, I think it was in response to the Scarborough Shoal affair, but, but I'm not exactly sure. But China made some sort of aggressive move, and everyone in the Pacific freaked out. And the U.S. is like, no, nah, no, 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 no. You can't do that. And we just flew— None of that. None of that. And we flew a couple of B-52 bombers like right over the airspace where China was saying— You can't fly through this. This is our exclusive area now. So the U.S. gets pulled in because we push back, in part because of our security alliance with countries in that area, as well as our national interests. Since 2010, these disputes and incidents have been increasing in frequency, where China will send their military or some sort of fishing vessel in some sort of confrontation or another in the South or East China Sea. Uh, A couple more examples of events that have happened in the last several years. In April 2010, two Chinese submarines and eight destroyers, which is not an insignificant grouping of of ships, sailed really close to Okinawa, which is an island off the coast of Japan. It's a Japanese island. A Japanese vessel surveilled the movement of these Chinese ships, and that Japanese vessel was then subsequently buzzed by a couple of Chinese military helicopters. And the helicopter came so close to the Japanese ship, apparently, that it almost hit their radio mast. So there was almost a collision.
0: I'm imagining, uh, like, Top Gun, when the Admiral is on the ship and Tom Cruise buzzes him by and he spills his coffee on himself again. He's like, God damn it! I figure it's just like that, except in Japanese.
1: Right. So you can you can see how, with events like this happening more and more frequently, the risk of a miscalculation increases. The U.S. and China really probably don't want to go to war with each other. I I say probably because there are probably elements in both countries that aren't necessarily thinking straight. But even if you're not, you can imagine how an incident like this leads to an actual collision, and then all of a sudden, both countries need to kind of puff up their chests in order to maintain their legitimacy. So that happened in April 2010. Then just a couple months later in September 2010— A Chinese fishing boat rammed two Japanese Coast Guard ships. The Chinese captain was taken into custody, and Beijing demanded immediate release of this captain. It was this big international row. And just to note, you know, some of these Chinese quote-unquote fishing boats that have been seen in the South China Sea in the last couple of years have only really been fishing boats in the sense that the fishermen on board have had machine guns and no fishing poles. (laughs) So it's all relative. So I'm, I'm... If you go down to Georgia, you might find that a
0: shotgun and a six pack is a perfectly legitimate way of fishing. So I wanna I just wanna defend the Chinese on this one that sometimes you just gotta shoot the fish.
1: Hey, there's a big tuna.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: You better need a bigger boat. So these incidents have not decreased in frequency. In twenty fifteen, the US engage in what's called these freedom of navigation exercises that were, in part, in response to Chinese aggressive position over the last several years. And this really just pissed China off because they're saying, oh, well, you're sailing through these waters that are essentially our territory in one way or another. And the U.S. did it with its allies in the region and kind of just said, "Uh, no, you're wrong. Your claim is not valid. They're international waters, and according to international law, we have a right to travel and navigate through them, both commercial and military vessels. So anyways, these these run-ins have been happening more frequently, and there is always the threat of a miscalculation, something happening that neither leader uh, or the leaders in neither country really anticipated that can lead to an increase in aggression. And this is why maintaining open and constant communication channels with China is so very important right now. So there are all these different island chains in the East and South China Sea that sort of have a different history. And I'll just kind of walk through the history of the Senkakus as an example. And again, the Senkakus are the island chain in the East China Sea, disputed primarily between China and Japan. Now, territorial disputes between China and Japan have been going on for 2,000 years. It's a somewhat long-standing, tense relationship between these two countries. And just to give you a sense, again, of some of the historical precedents that China is trying to use to establish sovereignty on these countries, uh, in 1893, Empress Dowager of China gave some sort of special grant to one of the Senkaku Islands to one particular individual, a Chinese individual, who was collecting some sort of herb that treated the empress's illnesses. Uh, so th- this isn't China will still use this historical precedent to claim that you know that land is not terra nullius. It's called, which is um, terra nullius refers to a land that according to international law has not been subjected to any state sovereignty. So. You know, it's it's kind of a stretch, right? Like, oh, we had this empress one time that gave a grant to one guy to collect some herb. Therefore, historic, historical precedent says it's ours, right, in perpetuity. But this inability to claim historical precedent remains a sticking point with China. They want to be able to use their long-standing history and relative power and strength in the region to expand their territorial claims, but that doesn't really sit very well within at least the contemporary framework of international law. So with the Senkakus specifically, there are two laws within UN CLOS, the laws of the sea, that you can start to see where some of this conflict arises. And it has to do with how these EEZs, these exclusive economic zones, are defined and delineated. So one article, Article 57, says that an EEZ can be claimed 200 nautical miles from the country's shore, right? Pretty easy. But then there's this other article, Article 76, that says that an EEZ can be claimed to the edge of a country's continental shelf up to 350 nautical miles. So why is that a problem? Well, because the East China Sea from the shores of China to Japan is only 360 nautical miles. So Even if you agree with some sort of median, then both sides are still going over this 200 nautical mile threshold. And if China makes the more exorbitant claim that, well, we can claim 350 nautical miles out, then all of a sudden their claims of exclusive economic rights are sitting right up against the edge of Okinawa. This gets even more complicated when you look at some of the more recent historical precedent. So after World War II, for example, Japan was to return all of its islands. There's this declaration that said that, you know, Japan was to be stripped all of all territories that it stole from China. And of course, these Senkaku islands were not explicitly mentioned in this declaration, which just continues to kind of muddle the issue. Now, for recent historical context, in 1969, Okinawa placed a marker of sovereignty on one of the main islands in the Senkaku. Island chain, which is basically signifying that it was going to be part of the Okinawa prefecture, and at that point, China didn't care. The dispute, however, got going later in that year, in 1969, when a team of Japanese geologists discovered, of course, a huge underwater oil field. Ah, yes. That all of a sudden made that land a little bit more desirable. So there's there's this really rich history that's gone on. Uh, between these specific islands over really insignificant just rocks out in the middle of the ocean.
0: So the Senkakus themselves alone, just between two countries, have this hugely complex both historical and international law context that leads to a lot of competing claims and therefore a lot of risk for dispute. The same goes on with the Parasols, and it gets even worse with the Spratlys. We chose the Senkakus because they're the simplest example. And so it means that there's some serious ongoing risk here in the region. You know, obviously, the biggest risk is that this is a powder keg, right? Some of these disputes and some of these incidents have a risk of coming to blows where someone says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to park yourselves here or you're not going to detain these people. Or you're not going to ram this tugboat, and someone starts shooting, and someone starts dying. And if you remember World War One, it only took one death to set off the powder keg that was Europe, and it was hugely destructive. So this is something we should be worried about. In general, we've got an arms race going on. The area is getting quite built up with military. And so what this means is that there were some militaries that were pretty far from each other, and it would be pretty obvious. If you were coming from the Philippines and sailing directly at Chinese shores for 400 nautical miles and just going like, doo, 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 right, and China would say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? And you'd have like four hours to respond before anyone started to get really worried and say, hey, you better turn back now. Now it's like 18 seconds because there are these military installations and it isn't just China, even though it's mostly China. There are these military installations that are right bloody next to each other, uh, with boats floating around and such. And so the risk of strategic miscalculation goes up. In particular, given the stakes of the South and East China Seas, and if we remember, it's it's military security, it's fishing, it's shipping, and it's oil. The stakes are high enough, and the long-term status quo precedent setting seems important enough to everyone – that they might be willing to come to blows to be able to assert their claims if the United Nations and ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, isn't able to arbitrate in a way that everyone agrees with. So if we look at the People's Daily from October 2011, which is, again, that propaganda piece from the Chinese Communist Party, it said, quote, if these countries don't want to change their ways with China... They will need to prepare for the sounds of cannons. We need to be ready for that, as it may be the only way for the disputes in the sea to be resolved. The former CIA director of the United States also believes that there's a real risk of a fight. Many elements within the United States believe that at some point you need to draw a line and say, if you go further than this, we're going to fight back. Otherwise, there's the risk of creep. So if we look back to the example of Iraq invading Kuwait, generally that's believed to have been a quote, good war by the United States and the West saying, no, 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 you don't just get to take over another country. We're going to thump you until you go back. And so for both sides, there is some real incentive to be willing to use force in order to fix the long term game here. In the very long term, there is a risk of the Chinese Navy occupying and therefore controlling shipping routes, most importantly, and less importantly, fishing and oil exploration. Controlling these shipping routes would give China a ton of global leverage. So assume, for example, that, I don't know, Iran was able to take full control of the Strait of Hormuz. What would happen is they would have a ton of leverage over the oil that ships in and out of there. For the United States, their long-term strategy is making sure that international trade is free and open at all times. And this sounds like the good guy position, and you might say it is. But for the United States, the point is to never let anyone restrict the trade that's flowing through essentially the United States. The United States has by far the most overseas trade of any nation. I mean, just order of magnitude. And also benefits indirectly from trade between other countries. So the United States is willing to put its foot down to say, no, international trade keeps going because it's our strategic imperative.
1: So in addition to basically securing and, well, maintaining freedom of navigation and trade, which is a big reason why the U.S. spends so much money on our defense budget and maintaining this massive naval superiority that we have, there's also this security aspect, the United States being able to reassure our allies that our security guarantee is real. So if push comes to shove, you know, Japan might be thinking right now, is the US really going to come to our aid? Do they have our back? Or should we start investing more in our own military in the event that if China is aggressive, we might not get the help that we need? And so there's this word that gets thrown around when talking about relations with China right now, it's containment. And it's a word that the U.S. generally tries to avoid because China sees containment, or at least the concept of containment, as a direct threat to its ability to project power and determine and influence outcomes in its particular region of the world, especially given you know the historical context that we covered in the prior episode with the Opium Wars and how the West has had a history of intervening in Chinese domestic affairs. But effectively, the U.S. is trying to prevent China's ability to overtly project power too far into the Pacific. But we you know, we kind of don't want to draw a red line because we don't want another Syria fiasco, or we draw a red line and then we don't back it up. So there's this careful balance between kind of trying to contain China in some aspects while not saying that we are... And this is all kind of baked into this very delicate diplomatic balancing act that's going on right now.
0: Right. And for the United States, it has succeeded since it's become a global power in the 20th century. The United States has succeeded in a very similar way that China has all of its existence, which is keeping the barbarians divided. So making sure that neither Asian, European, nor Middle Eastern powers are able to unite into a single force that can challenge the United States is very important. And the best way to prevent that from happening is to prevent any country from taking over the whole dang thing. So that's why the United States always opposes the most dominant, powerful player in any regional war, because we want to make sure that these areas remain fairly divided. And the way to do that without actually having to go to war all the time is by setting a precedent that we will continue to do this anytime someone breaks the rules. So see Iraq and Kuwait, see Germany. And so for the United States, its credibility is very important. It needs to be able to say, look, if you start a war in any of the following ways, we're going to come thump you. And by the realist school of foreign policy, the belief is that having this precedent be clear will actually make the world a far more peaceful place because people will go, "Eh, maybe not. Uh, And that prevents forwards from happening in the first place. So that's why the United States really wants to make sure that that credibility is really, really clear. It wants to prevent war and it wants to prevent that war being something that China wins and is able to use to absorb power in East Asia. Now, the way that the United States is doing this and preserving that credibility is having these very frequent military operations through the area that it calls freedom of navigation operations. And all it is, is sailing some really, really big ships through the areas and just saying, hey, we're here. And guess what? You're not going to do anything about it. And so that's precedent setting via status quo in its own little ways. Just as China is trying to set status quo about fishing in certain areas and such, the United States under eight's claim of legitimacy that now these are international waters. Anyone could be here. And by anyone, I totally mean us just sends aircraft carrier battle groups there every now and then saying like, Hey guys, just coming by saying hello. Yeah. Everything good. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Bye. And it just floats right through. And for China, this is clearly seen as an affront to their, you know, for them, obvious territorial security. So you look at this and go, Look at the United States. This is just like all those other times in the two centuries of shame that people started rolling close, encroaching on our territory, and whenever we were weak and we showed weakness, they invaded. So we can't show this weakness. Again, see this risk of escalation starting to emerge. But for the United States, its credibility, just as China's comes from history, the United States' credibility comes from citing UN Colossus, and it says it maintains the line that China has no claim at all as far south as the Spratlys, uh, which are largely in Malaysian, Vietnamese EEZs, and some of which are in what it considers to be international waters. The United States says consistently that China must stop and reverse its buildup. Now, China says, of course, well, you're not even party to UN class, so screw you, which is its way of saying you don't have any moral high ground here and we don't have to listen to your claims. And the U.S. says, ah, we mostly follow U.N. clause and all the parts that are absolutely relevant, we consider local law, to so deal with it. So there's a lot of bickering that's going on here as the United States tries to maintain freedom of navigation through the area. Most importantly, the United States has pledged military support to the Philippines and Japan in any territorial conflicts that it has with the People's Republic of China. So this is something that either this is one of those things that starts looking quite frighteningly like a red line, and could pay off very well, where China says, you know what, we're not going to test the Americans here, or could falter, because every time the United States draws a red line and doesn't back it up, the credibility of the United States weakens. Have you made up your mind uh, whether to take action against Syria, whether or not you have a congressional resolution approved, uh, is a strike needed in order to preserve your credibility for when you set these sort of red lines? And were you able to enlist the support of the prime minister here for support in Syria? Uh, Let me unpack the question. First of all, I didn't set a red line. The world set a red line. Uh, We have been very
1: clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground, that a red line for us is
0: we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation.
1: So when I mentioned a, a few minutes ago this fairly recent example of the U.S. flying these B-52 bombers over the Spratleys, I mean, China was super not happy about that, right? And we're probably going to keep doing that. To basically just say, listen, we know what you're saying, but we don't care because you're kind of not playing by the rules. And China's rhetoric is not exactly gentle when these things happen. I mean, the Chinese foreign minister called this flyover an attack on China. And they insist that the U.S. cannot and should not make the South China Sea an international issue because, after all, it's Chinese territory. And China has this history of using really inflammatory rhetoric and going, oh my God, you're attacking us. How can you do this? This is terrible, blah, 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 blah. big fuss. But then, you know, if there is a real cost in going beyond rhetoric, they frequently don't go beyond rhetoric. But the rhetoric that they do use is very aggressive sounding. And and I'm just going to come back to this term freedom of navigation that we're using because it really is kind of uh, one of these interesting diplomacy-speak phrases, freedom of navigation. We are conducting these exercises to ensure that, you know, everyone has the right to go where they want on international oceans. But really, it's kind of just diplomacy talk for a game of chicken. I mean, it's basically, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to back this up with guns? If not, well, okay, good. We've made our point. So what could happen going
0: forward? Well, China has said that if the U.S. does not drop its demands, that China stop building up in the South China Sea— War is inevitable. Now, again, see China's frequent aggressive rhetoric, but there is a chance of war. Former CIA director thinks that there is a real risk of war. Any of these incidents could blow up like a powder keg. Now, if war does happen, China has a much bigger military in the region than anyone else, including the United States in terms of sheer numbers. If there was a military conflict that escalates significantly, China would have an initial edge, at least close to its own waters. The United States might end up waiting to engage until it gets more carrier fleets in the area, which would take some time, probably a few weeks. So China could make a quick strike to try to eliminate the navies of other countries. Now, that said, the United States Navy is so big compared to all of these, even Japan, that it almost might not matter. Right, so this isn't quite like hitting Pearl Harbor, where you get rid of most of the navy, you'd have to fight, and then just hope that they don't build up fast enough. This would be more like I don't know, knocking over a sandcastle, and hoping that the military doesn't come to whack you afterward. Uh, so it'd be a very provocative move by China. Be very risky because you probably get three or four aircraft par- carrier battle groups in the area pretty quickly, and the United States would likely be able to lock down the South and East China Seas pretty quickly. China has a lot of hardware. It's not as advancing as the United States, and it's also not as mobile. So the United States would be able to clean up areas that are more than a few hundred miles beyond China's continental border because most of China's hardware is locked there. If the U.S. somehow stayed out of it, China's neighbors would just get totally shellacked here, and a pretty big regional arms race would ultimately kick off. I think it's very unlikely that China would try invading these other places. But if the U.S. stayed out of it, everyone would decide, okay, we can't depend on the United States. We have to do this ourselves. So we're going to start building up stuff. This would probably include Japan. Everyone else would start pouring lots more money here, so we'd see an arms race begin. And the region would become unstable pretty fast. So... In one example, Trump is advocating pulling out of East Asia and letting them handle their own stuff, and it might be a really, really bad time for it.
1: Yeah, so when Trump says stuff like, I don't care if Japan gets nukes, there's all this subtext going on. Because if Japan starts developing a nuclear deterrent, it could trigger a nuclear arms race in the Pacific when there are already all of these tensions coming from a rising China
0: so the South China Sea isn't hot in the news right now, in part because the Middle East is so interesting and its war is actually hot rather than cold. But you should care. You should really care. This area is very important and there's a major risk of a very big war breaking out, which would be devastating. Unlike a war with ISIS, we are fighting 30,000 people with a very loose, very grumpy coalition of different people you'd be talking about nations of billions of people with huge GDPs behind them, slogging it out. It would be very bloody, it'd be very expensive, and it'd be very disruptive. The reality on the ground is more complex than China's a big bully and we should fight back or we should just leave them be and us being there is provocative. Neither of those narratives are accurate And neither of them is going to inform really good strategy and policy for the United States in East Asia. Both of the go in hot and leave it alone strategies involve a lot of risk of increasing tensions and increasing the likelihood of war in the region. So as the presidential race starts to consolidate, if we look at the five candidates, the five big ones, they each have some pretty diverse views on this and what we should do in East Asia. They don't talk about them as much because they're not as emotionally interesting as talking about some other stuff, but they do have policies on them. And you should study them with this context as you think about who do you want to be your commander in chief. And if you're not in the United States, you should study them and talk to your American friends about who you want to be the American commander in chief. because this stuff is very important, the stakes are high and in particular, given that Americans are proportionally uninformed on the South China Sea, compared to a lot of other hot button issues, there's a risk of us not making the right decision as we choose a commander in chief to deal with this. So that's that. Hopefully you guys have enjoyed this last two hours. Hopefully you're coming out feeling much more informed and have much more context around how to think about this very important, very populous, and very risky region of the world. Uh, It's got huge implications for the United States and everyone else, both in East Asia and in other regions in the world. So give it some thought. Go talk to your friends. And if you want to learn more and you want to get in touch with us, just remember to reach out to us on Twitter at ReconsiderPod and Facebook at ReconsiderPod. Uh, One thing we'd absolutely love is a review on iTunes. So we've had 10 episodes out now. You guys have had some opportunity to listen to us for a bit. It would be great to get some feedback from you, both in email at stc at something to consider movement.com and online on iTunes or Google Play as reviews. Uh, if you love us, say something great about us so that more people can hear what we're talking about um, and so that they too, like you, won't let the pundits or candidates do the thinking for them so that they too can stop and reconsider.
1: This is Eric Fogg, signing off. This is Andrew Snyder, signing off. Have a good one.